Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the History of England, episode 263, The Devise. Don't forget everyone that next week we start a jam bore A week of podcasts taking us through the dramatic succession crisis of 1553, day by day, and the life of Lady Jane Grey. For all of you, there is a simple poll and the chance to win a copy of The Crown of Blood, and a historic George V 1916 English coin. For members, there is also a quiz and a separate prize draw with a chance to win a Philip and Mary 16th century coin. Members can join both competitions, by the way, because life is better for members of the History of England. And by the way, you might, you might well think that membership of the History of England would be a perfect Christmas present, and you would have some justification in so thinking. If you do... Hop along to thehistoryofengland.co.uk and find out how it's done. So much news to give you. Don't forget, this very week, right now, as we speak, a new series has started for members. It's a serialised biography of Eleanor of Aquitaine. You get an episode a week of 10 to 15 minutes and then an omnibus of all four or five episodes gathered together under one roof at the end of the month. Good Lord! Go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk forward slash become a member this instant. Well, wait, before you do, there's more. Eleanor was, of course, born in 1124. Well, when we get to 1146, when she is, just a minute, uh, 21, 22, a second separate serialised biography will start on William the Marshal in the same way. And meanwhile, the history of Scotland still continues. I may faint. I have just one word for you. thehistoryofengland.co.uk forward slash become a member. Last week, then, we heard about the flowering of John Dudley's career, if I can put it like that. 
how after many years in royal service and on the king's council, he came to be primus inter pares of the royal council. I have talked a little about his motivations and the controversy about that. Was he driven by greed, ambition, a lust for power? Or was he driven mainly by a sense of duty, loyalty to the king and desire to redeem his family reputation lost by his father? Or indeed, just a bit of all. What we've seen is that Northumberland had the courage to take decisions that were necessary. He had withdrawn from war with Scotland. He had made peace with France. Together with the inspired financial shenanigating by Thomas Gresham on the Antwerp money exchanges, Northumberland had begun to free England from the debt with which it had been saddled. Not to be forgotten, of course, that there was one more round of altar stripping. With the mass banished and simplicity re-established, there was no need then for all the glittering plate and chalices that adorned the altar, and they were carted off wholesale to be mashed up and melted down for use by the state. In terms of Northumberland's material greed, of which he is often accused, he had indeed made himself warden of the Northern Marches and awarded himself the substantial salary of £1,333. Nice, you might say. Until he realised that he did need to maintain the Northern retinue to defend said Marches from that salary. And Somerset, for example, had awarded himself £5,333. So, you know, Northumberland begins to look as cheap as chips by comparison. Now, by 1553, Northumberland did indeed have very substantial estates and income, with a household of 200 and an income of 4,300 quid. By having himself awarded a ducal title, he'd certainly achieved his craving for public recognition. But this income pales in comparison with Somerset's, or even with the greater magnates such as the Earl of Shrewsbury, It's far less than other leading statesmen Wolsey and Cromwell had achieved, even without taking inflation into account. He'd laid a nest egg of most reasonable proportions by the standards of his time. Also, much of this money seems to have been provided by taking the offcuts, as it were. So, land seems to come rather frequently in and out of Northumberland's hands as it becomes available. This seems to mean that Northumberland wasn't building up a long-term set of family estates, so much as taking some income as he could before making long-term grants. One result is that Northumberland built a much smaller man-red than many of his magnate competitors. A smaller what, I hear you ask? The word man-red comes from man-rent, pretty much. And I suppose we might very loosely compare it to the old affinity, the network of people who felt they owed their loyalty and service to a particular lord. But Manred is rather more specifically related to the tenants of the Lord's lands, whereas affinity was much broader. Either way, Northumberland doesn't seem to work very hard at creating his large own private Manred, which doesn't say very much for any ambitions he might have had to seize power against the political will. This will be significant, warned the podcaster darkly. Northumberland had begun to embed the operations of the King's Council into the hard wiring of England's executive, and he'd begun to introduce the King into that process as well. Understanding the relationship between the young King and Northumberland, and understanding the mind of Edward, is crucial to what follows. In a sense, Edward's position as King was no different to any of his predecessors, or indeed immediate successors. He was the King. The King's will was paramount. There was no specific moment when a young king officially became a big proper king. There were no rules saying, oh right, you must have a regency until this point, until the king has reached a certain age. 
His minority was, in fact, a sort of inconvenient divergence from the normal path. Folks realised that at some point, Edward would simply choose to throw off the cape of youth and assume the mantle of adulthood and a full role. He wasn't locked away for no one to see until he could step forth into the footlights and burst into Danny Boy. In terms of daily life, he was surrounded always by people of his privy chamber and his councillors. Just like Henry VIII or Mary or Elizabeth, he came under intense pressure from those councillors and from the people around him. You can see an example of this already in his relationship with that unscrupulous fox, Thomas Seymour. Edward had recorded in his diary, aged only ten, that Thomas had told him that I was too bashful in mine own interests and asked me why I did not speak to bear rule as other kings do. Now, Thomas Seymour at that point had been trying to get Edward to write in defence of his, Thomas Seymour's, plans to be made the king's governor, so he was trying to persuade him to assert his royal will. So although not fully in control of government, everyone knew that ultimately Edward, the king, was the mainspring whence authority flowed. And everyone pressed forward with their cups to catch some of that water or tried to redirect its path. So the gentlemen of the privy chamber, those men immediately around Edward, were crucial to influence the king's mind. This is just exactly the same as it was in Henry VIII's reign. And so why, you might ask, am I telling you this? You're probably thinking, look, we know this already. I've suffered the pain of over a year of listening to you grind on about Henry VIII. I know how the Tudor court works. Get on with it. My excuse is that it's important to show the context in which we start to see Edward take some control and in understanding that black legend that has attached itself to Northumberland. Put simply, the tradition has been to see Northumberland as a dominating and controlling influence over the young king and therefore responsible for what happened on Edward's death. Northumberland has therefore been condemned to history as a bad man, capital B, capital M, manipulative and power mad. Even where there is evidence of Edward beginning to exercise his authority, this is not proof that he was in control, that these words came from him. Maybe the evil duke stood just behind the young man, directing him in his writing a little like worm tongue. Quite probably, as the pliable young man bent his attention towards the job in hand, the evil duke's features behind him were twisted in evil, saliva sliding from his distorted lips, dripping unseen into the young boy's hair. Parody aside, it's a critical question and a very difficult one to resolve. Did Edward make his own decisions or were they just reflecting Northumberland's? This question is important particularly for two big things. The Reformation is one, which we've been discussing, and we've seen that Edward was to a substantial degree an enthusiastic supporter of the English Reformation. But now comes a new event, the creation of a new succession plan, the devise for the succession. If Edward fell under a bus... Who would succeed him? The question would be then, if this was Edward's plan, the device, or part of Northumberland's grand plan for plankton-like world domination. There were certainly some, then, that believed Edward was simply overawed by the great duke and fell into his power. This is a story that would serve many interests. The regime that succeeded Edward needed someone else to blame for the succession crisis. No one wanted to blame a king. So you need to look at evidence that the device was Northumberland's working in that light. Nonetheless, there were many that believed Northumberland was indeed the eminence cri. Edward Montague was the chief justice of the common pleas. Bear in mind that when he wrote this following phrase, he was in the aftermath. 
and he had a strong incentive to excuse his own role in the creation of Edward's plan for the succession. So he, Montague, stated that the king never invented this matter of himself, but by some wonderful false conscience. Robert Wingfield was a contemporary historian and a devout Catholic. He declared that the unhappy king dared not make any protest, but fell in with the duke's wishes, and later historians such as J.A. Froude would do their very own falling in with Wingfield's views. Northumberland had made important progress, he had persuaded Edward, and the council and lords could now be forced into an appearance of acquiescence. It is certainly true that Northumberland did his very best to make sure he could influence the king, and the imperial ambassador, amongst others, noted just how he did this. He did it by getting his own placemen into Edward's privy chamber so that they could influence the king. We are back, ladies and gentlemen, to the conversation we've had many times about Henry VIII, as we've said. The influence of gentlemen who could whisper into the king's ears while he was doing his some abluting. One of the four principal gentlemen of the privy chamber was Henry Sidney, Northumberland's son-in-law, for example. The French ambassador reported home that Sidney had acquired so great an influence near the king that he was able to make all of his notions conform. Conform to Northumberland's notion is what he's saying. But suspicion focuses most on one John Gates. In January 1550, John Gates became another of the four principal gentlemen around the king. In April 1551, he became vice-chamberlain. And again, it was the French ambassador who reported that Gates was the principal instrument which he, Northumberland, used to induce the king to something when he did not want it to be known it proceeded from himself. Gates was to report back to him everything said to the king, for this Gates was continually in the chamber. Gates also held the dry stamp of the king's signature. So fair dues, he was in a position of great trust and power. There's also a nice series of comments by Schiffer, the imperial ambassador as well. He reported that the duke would coach the young king in his chamber so that Edward would appear knowledgeable in front of the council. And a French source also claimed that he visited the king secretly at night in the king's chambre, unseen by anyone after we were all asleep. The next day, the young prince came to his council and proposed matters as if they were his own. Consequently, everyone was amazed, thinking they proceeded from his mind and from his invention. Schaefer also noticed that during a council meeting, Northumberland kept a close eye on the young king. He signalled to him to wrap things up when debate had exhausted itself. So the image being created is of a rather clueless, compliant young lad in the king, at the mercy of a Svengali-type figure in the Duke older, with a powerful personality that overawed the helpless adolescent who revered Northumberland as if he were himself one of his subjects, so much so that the things he knew to be desired by Northumberland he himself decreed to please the Duke. It's a bit tricky to get under the bonnet and gainsay this picture. What evidence could we show that Edward had a mind of his own and had the courage to assert himself against Northumberland? Well, there is some evidence of both, as it happens. From 1550, there's growing evidence of Edward's emerging will and interest in religious reform. In 1550, he insisted on altering the wording of the new Oath of Supremacy. He also ordered the removal of St George from the Order of the Garter, on the basis that saints were to be largely banished under the Reformation, though that didn't actually happen before his death and so remained. 
As these acts imply, Edward's will was clearly in favour of reformed religion. And we've also seen other evidence of this as he began to assert his will in opposition to his sister's passionate defence of traditional practice and was doing so with increasing force and began to refuse to back down. The same growth is then true of his interest in government. In 1551, Edward carefully recorded in his diary each of the Parliament's proclamations and he wrote about the changes that had been made in the coinage so he's beginning to show an active interest. In September 1552, he began to show that waspish irritation and attention to detail that so terrified Henry VIII's councillors. Edward had that Tudor insight. The unfortunate victim was our villainous Richard Rich, so that's OK then, torturer of Anne Askew, who announced that a certain document was not legitimate and needed the signature of more councillors. Edward wrote to him really rather sharply, We think, Your Lordship, not ignorant hereof, that the number of our councillors or any part of them maketh not our authority. As a result, Richard Rich did the brave Sir Robin thing and headed for the safety of his duvet and absented himself from court and Henry VIII's procedures for the use of the king's dry stamp were resurrected. So in this, Edward was protecting his royal authority and his interest in the royal supremacy is clear and continuing. Edward also began to create a series of political papers, the sort of things these days we'd see in a TED Talks or something like that. Edward would have got himself dressed up in jacket and jeans, installed PowerPoint, headed for the stage with a head mic, laptop, and started talking about thought leadership and that sort of stuff. In many of these exercises, Edward was probably being engaged and encouraged by his tutors, academic essays, that sort of thing, questions set by his tutor, compare and contrast the treatise of Vienna and Versailles, that sort of thing. But then, when most of us would stop the minute we were able to and go and play footy or hit the boozer, Edward kept going. There are five papers that he produced after his formal education had probably finished at 14. These include The Whys and Wherefores of Providing Military Aid to the Emperor, An Analysis of the Financial Situation, On Religion and Particularly Significantly On the Management of Business Through the Council. Edward here was thinking about the political future and administration of his kingdom. He began referring in his diary to my council rather than the council as he'd done before. He was preparing to take over, and as he should, because in October 1552 he turned 15. So, is this Edward talking, or is it a result of Northumberland's saliva? It's very difficult to know. Historians seem pretty universally convinced now that Edward was the sort of bloke who sat at the front of class and put his hand up frequently, and not only that, gave good answers rather than something vacuous. His parents would have glowed with pride at his school report. There are a couple of occasions, at least, where we can see a difference of opinion between Edward and Northumberland. So, notably... Edward supported Cranmer's reform of canon law against Northumberland. Now, as it happens, Edward seems to have lost that argument and Northumberland blocked it, but there it was nonetheless, and in Edward's will, there was an exhortation to carry on the reform, which suggests that Northumberland persuaded Edward to delay it rather than permanently block it. And at very least, it's evidence of Edward's independent thinking. There's another little incident over an archery session when Edward taunted Northumberland that he aimed better when he cut off my uncle Somerset's head, which I have to say is a lumbering sort of a gag, but some evidence at least that Edward wasn't walking around eyes downcast, scared of Northumberland, however much he may have relied on him and looked up to him. If you're going to consider the idea that maybe Northumberland did not dominate and control Edward, 
well, you need to put an alternative in place. The alternative mooted is that Northumberland's power and authority was instead based on the respect and gratitude of his young master, that what Northumberland did was take his teenage king seriously. Rather than trying to keep him in the background and out of the way, as Somerset did, he tried to give him the keys of the kingdom. A good starting point for the argument is a rather cold phrase by historian Eric Ives. Investing in control of a boy was investing in a wasting asset. Hmm, I see. His point is, though, that at some point Edward, in the words of Freddie Mercury, would want to break free. And as he did, Northumberland would head toastwards if said king hated and despised him. Ives also makes the point that although it's quite true that Northumberland made sure that his mates were close to the king, like John Gates, as we've talked about, it doesn't need do to be a naive here. That's what we've seen politicians trying to do throughout Henry's reign. Northumberland, in the context of the day, would have had to have been a blithering idiot not to. Any of his council colleagues would have given their eye teeth to do the same. It's entirely normal behaviour. The argument goes that Northumberland was in fact a consummate and effective politician. That's what his consensual style of government was all about. He ruled through and with the council, not separately to it as Somerset had tried to do. I think I may have bored you with my example that by the time you bring a proposal to a new product development committee, you should know very well what the decision will be because you've already lined them up. That's how Northumberland worked. It might be that Northumberland's approach, in line with his desperate desire to rehabilitate the Dudley family name, was to do such a good job for his young boss that Edward would retain him forever because he liked and trusted him and was grateful for his service. What we know happens is that Northumberland encourages Edward to come regularly now to council meetings rather than trying to keep him away. And surely if the man was trying to control all the variables and suppress the king's independence, keeping him away from the council is what he'd have tried to do. But no, Northumberland actively puts Edward in front of his council. A lot depends on how you interpret these following comments from the imperial ambassador, Schiffer. In January 1552, he wrote... He seems to be a likely lad of quick, ready and well-developed mind. Remarkably so for his age. Northumberland, whom he seems to love and fear, is beginning to grant him a good deal of freedom in order to dispel the hostility felt for him. And then again in March 1552. The king is usually present at council meetings now, especially when state business is being transacted, in order to lend his personal authority to the council's decisions. Critically, at these meetings, Schiffer noted this point that Northumberland would send secret messages to the king, little signs that this or that debate had gone on long enough and maybe should be closed down now. As I've mentioned, the ambassadors were convinced Edward was being coached. Now, both sides, Team Good Duke and Team Bad Duke, have used this to support their case because it is completely two-edged. There could be the evil Eminence Gris controlling the lad from a distance, or it could be the mentor, the master Ugwe, encouraging, helping, breathing confidence to a young man in a challenging and scary situation. I cannot make your mind up for you. What is very clear is that by this stage, Edward was a young man of great promise. His intellectual powers are well attested, his library enormous, demonstrating the breadth and depth of his education. John Fox marvelled at his quickness with Latin and Greek. Cardano, an Italian physician, met Edward around this time and he was glowing in his reports. He described Edward as of a stature somewhat below middle height, 
pale face with grey eyes, a grave aspect, decorous and handsome. It might be a miracle of nature to behold the excellent wit and forwardness that appeared in him. This boy, declared Cardano, was filled with the highest expectation on account of his cleverness and sweetness of manner. In his humanity, he was a picture of our mortal state. I have to say it reads remarkably similarly to my school reports. Not, sadly. There is further evidence that the Reformation was firmly in the right hands. So, Schieffer asked the king to be godfather to his child, which is kind of reasonably standard practice at the time. Edward, of course, politely agreed, but he declined to attend the ceremony because it would be held under the Catholic rite. Incidentally, in England, the ambassadors were allowed to practice religion according to their own tradition, Catholic or whatever, a rite signally denied to English ambassadors aboard. Source for the goose was apparently not source for the gander. Anyway, Edward told Shiver, he was firmly resolved that his laws and constitutions should be obeyed within his realm. A different course of conduct would be against his conscience. OK, you decide then, you lot, and let me know when you know what you think. But essentially, as far as the political nation was concerned, they were on to a good thing as far as Edward was concerned, and he seemed active and pretty healthy, the lad. Though, distressingly enough, he did have a bout of illness in an April 1552. He caught both measles and smallpox. But he seemed to have shaken them off within a couple of weeks, a fact everyone celebrated, of course, including his younger sister Elizabeth, from whom we've not heard for a while. Now, Elizabeth was much less of a worry, of course, than was Mary, partly because, unlike Mary, she wasn't, you know, next in line to the throne under Henry's will, but also because she's very much conformist in religion and she kept herself in Edward's good books. She's 19 by this time, is Elizabeth, and clever, both in intellect and the softer skills of life. She sent a pic of herself to her brother. I humbly beseech your majesty that when you shall look on my picture, you will vouch safe to think that as you have but the outward shadow of the body afore you, so my inward mind wisheth that the body itself were oftener in your presence. Dare I say ever so slightly slimy. Not the kind of letter I'd expect to get from my sister, and if I ever did, I would be irredeemably weirded. But then, you know, I'm not King of England, fortunately. In January 1553, his other sister, Mary, came to call again. This time, she managed not to shove her religious defiance into everyone's faces, or indeed she decided this time the priority was not to show her solidarity with traditionalists, depending on your viewpoint. And the meetings with her brother were friendly. But... Edward was ill. He was a right poorly pig with a bad cough, and he was bedridden. This time the illness lingered. Parliament had been called to address the problem of money, and it was opened on the 1st of March in a low-key ceremony, and then it was suspended for a day because the king was ill again, and by the 17th of March he'd been confined to his room. The news from the palace improved during April. On the 31st of March, Edward had been able to peruke Parliament. He was walking in the garden by the 10th and travelled down to Greenwich on the 11th. And so, he seemed to be on the mend. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
and it's while he's on the mend that it seems Edward started doodling. Now, when you or I doodle, no one paints a blind bit of notice, except maybe to compliment us on a particularly fine example, or tell us that we went wrong at that bit. But when you're a king, you doodle about the succession, and everyone sits up a little bit straighter, like my dog does, when he's trying to persuade me that he's such a good hound, I really ought to be sharing that bun that I've got in my hand. No one seems to have seen this initial doodle, not even Northumberland. It's all in the king's hand, and he called it his devise for the succession. Golly, there's a doodle for you. It's dynamite, actually. Timing's important here, by the way. Edward and his doctors, remember, fully expected him to be fine at this point. There will be four versions of the device for the succession as it develops over time. This first one, probably done in April 1553, carried on Edward's father's obsession, defining a line of succession for men only. Edward was clearly feeling fine, and this was just a precaution, nothing to worry about. The succession starts with Edward's children, of course, whenever they start popping off the production line. But if the unthinkable happened, then the succession goes not to Mary or to Elizabeth, which is what they should have done if Henry's will had been in in operation, because, you know, they're women. Nor does it go to Lady Frances Grey, because, as she would surely point out to you, she's a woman too. But it would go to Lady Frances Grey's male heirs. And then, if she didn't have any boys, it would go to the male heirs of her sisters, also Brandon descendants of Henry VIII's sister, Mary. It's a remarkably optimistic succession, actually, because none of these people actually had any male heirs. But the point is that Princess Mary is nowhere. By Eck. And this is despite the fact that Shiver had supported with satisfaction that Mary had been received at court as if she had been the Queen of England and Northumberland was very clearly communicating politely with Mary, keeping her well informed of goings-on at court, just as though she was, indeed, the heir. Though Shiver was not entirely happy, he was a little bit worried about Northumberland. There'd been a rumour last year that Northumberland was minting coins with his own head on them, even though that had been disproved. But now in May, Lady Jane Grey, she was married to Northumberland's son, Guildford. Well, that got the tongues wagging, I'll tell you. Shiva noted that Jane's mother was third heiress to the crown by the testamentary deposition of the late king and has no male heirs. He's thinking that if the king mysteriously dies, followed by Mary and Elizabeth, well, guess who'd be in the driving seat? Northumberland. That's who his son would be married, you know, to the heiress. So poor old Shiva was laying eggs, even though it seems a bit fair-fetched at this point. Indeed, actually, history has tended to see this as Northumberland already plotting. Ah, Edward's about to croak. Better get my son married to Jane, because Edward's changed the succession. So then, if he de- when he does croak, my son will be king by right of Jane, and I'll be in power forever. Long live me. The problem with this tr- story is that it's hindsight. It's actually too early for Northumberland to think all of this. The doctors by this stage were convinced that Edward would get better. Northumberland had been hawking Guildford, his son, around the marriage market for a while, already being turned down by the Cliffords, as it happens. It seems actually to have been William Herbert, the powerful Earl of Pembroke, who suggested the idea of a Guildford plus Jane equal happiness formula. And Jane's younger sister actually married Pembroke's own lad at the same time. The marriage must have been agreed some time earlier, when the king was even finer than the doctors thought he was in April. 
Even Shiver concludes that this is just Northumberland going through the normal process of building up his power by making good marriages, which, as we've seen over the last mm, 500 years, is what the nobility do. But in May, inside the palace, everything changed. The king could just not shake off his illness, and he had a really horrid cough now. The doctors diagnosed a tumour on the lung on the 12th of May. One of Edward's medical team was an imperial spy, of course, which is what gives us this report. He does not sleep unless stuffed with drugs, which the doctors called opiates. The patient is in great pain or tormented by constant sleeplessness or racked by violent coughing. The sputum he brings up is livid, black, fetid and full of carbon. It smells beyond measure. His feet are swollen all over. To the doctors, all these things portend death, and that within three months. On the 28th of May, the Duke of Northumberland summoned all Edward's doctors to a case conference, and he asked them point-blank what Edward's chances were. I'm sorry, they said. There's no longer any doubt. Edward must prepare to meet his maker, and it won't be long. We cannot know, but it seems likely that Northumberland was by now aware of Edward's doodlings. The suspicion has been that it was Northumberland that now guided Edward's hand to change his succession plans. The poor, weakened and helpless king forced to disinherit his dear, dear sister by the evil and quite possibly dribbly Northumberland. But what is clear is that it was Edward, and Edward alone, who had completed the first version and had already written Mary out of the succession. So that's not Northumberland's work. But by June, that version one was disastrous, because there were no heirs that qualified under its rules if Edward croaked now, which, of course, everybody knows is going to happen. So he does not take a rocket scientist, not even a 16th century rocket scientist, to know that something had to be done. Yet version two was still created in the king's very own hand. Not only was it written by Edward, but this process was not done in a corner between a king and Northumberland. That can often be the impression, a document hurriedly produced in the dark corners with the king being dribbled on. Too much dribbling? But while the news was kept as secretly as possible, the succession was produced in front of the council and in front of the council's legal advisers. In version two subsequently worked into a fair version, version 3, Jane Grey was made the heir. Now, quite why her mum was passed over again, I'm not clear, except to say that Edward's father had done the same thing. We've got some theories I'll talk about in a couple of episodes' time. Edward clearly had the energy still to do this. He signed the paper in six places. So, next came legal advice to turn version 3 into version 4. The legal stage opens interesting questions about why Edward changed the succession and about the legality of it all. Before going into it, it's important to know where the stories come from and the knitting of covers is an important consideration, let me tell you. All the contemporary accounts come from people who were explaining what had gone on to Princess Mary later without wanting too many plot spoilers, you know. So the thing was, they were unlikely to say something like I thought it seemed like a great idea to write you out of the will. And anyway, your dad thought you were illegitimate. So the main account is from Edward Montague, the guy we've heard about already, the Lord Chief Justice. And there are accounts of bits of the process also from William Cecil, 
and from Robert Wingfield. It's Montague's account that normally wins in the books, because it's dramatic. It's Sunday, 11th of June, 1553. Montague receives a letter signed by 11 councillors. He is to attend the court at 1pm the following day with other legal officers. Golly! Montague duly arrives the following day, and together they're all ushered into the presence of the king. At Edward's side are William Paulet, the treasurer, the useless Marquis of Northampton, John Gates and some other cannon fodder, you know, red shirt wearers. According to Montague, Edward said that Mary was unmarried, he was worried she'd marry a foreign husband, and the laws of this realm might be altered and changed, and His Highness's proceedings in religion might be changed. Those, then, are the reasons, according to Montague, why the succession was to be changed, and it could well be true. Or it could be that this is simply safer than saying to Mary, your dad and your brother considered you to be illegitimate. So, the legal team was sent away with version 3 of the device for the succession and told to work up a final version 4, all legally tied up nice and proper and all that sort of thing. So away they went, quite possibly scurrying. According to Montague, they came back the following day and they objected. Nay, refused. Sorry, little king, this is a red and no go. It will be quite, quite illegal. Sorry, it's Mary for me. At this point, Northumberland is supposed to have stormed in and yelled at them all, including threatening to fight Edward Montague. Away they scurried until the 15th of June, when they were shown into a king with his angry face on. And Montague caved in, having so bravely and handsomely fought for his legal principle and the rights of his most darling Princess Mary. Seeing the king so earnest and sharp, and the said duke so angry the day before, who ruled the whole council as it pleased him, and were all afraid of him, the more the pity, so that such cowardliness and fear there never was seen among honourable men. Well done, any baby. You really fought for your princess, you loyal lad. She'll probably reward you by not chopping your head off. The final device for the succession was drawn up, and duly, on the 22nd, Montague and all the lawyers returned and signed it. It's not a bad story, and quite convincing, but there are reasons to doubt it. Those legal objections, then, it is quite possible that Mark Montague did, in fact, argue at first. The vast majority of lawyers I have worked with, like surveyors, actually, feel the need to go through the tooth-sucking phase. That's kind of the nature of the beast, I think. The risk inherent in any action needs to be identified and talked about. And by this stage, we already have an honourable tradition of lawyers in England desperate to avoid political shenanigans. But the idea that devise is illegal is deeply dodgy. The assumption is twofold that it breached Henry VIII's will, and that it was not ratified by Parliament. But we have Henry's 1544 statute for the succession as evidence here. That act stated that Henry had, and I quote, full and plenary powers to assign the crown to whomsoever he wished, just by issuing letters patent, or by the terms of his will. Nowhere in the bill does it say that Parliament gave this power to Henry? That would have been nutty. The king called Parliament, not the other way round. Basically, the 1544 statute accepted and confirmed for all to see that the king had the power to devise the succession as he saw fit. This then dispatches the second objection to the bandy rope, nay, sends the ball soaring over the ropes to the thunderous cheers of the crowd. The right follows the king, not Henry. Henry is dead and so Edward is king. 
There are no rules anywhere saying that Edward is not a proper king yet, as I have discussed already. Ironically, Montague and his chums also lift parts of the wording directly from the 1544 statute that the said Lady Mary and Lady Elizabeth to all intents and purposes are and be clearly disabled to ask, claim or challenge the said imperial crown. Montague, my contention is, was simply trying to save his life. A perfectly reasonable activity, whatever your hourly rate. Given that Montague's grounds for objection are so flimsy, it seems quite acceptable to find Robert Wingfield's account much more convincing, which was that all the lawyers except two accepted the device, quote, up to the hilt, with Montague, in fact, leading the charge. Though for balance, we should note that Wingfield's motivation was to condemn everyone he could find in the Princess Mary's eyes, so, you know, care also needed. We now come to the other signatories of the device. There are over a hundred. Edward was clearly worried, though, so he drew up a special document we might call the engagement. So let's call it the engagement. And the engagement is a single sheet of paper. It commits the signatories to implement the device. The signatories, 16 councillors and the relevant law officers, signed in the presence of Edward himself. There were clearly some worried now amongst the various councillors. Edward was ill. Maybe they would be in trouble if things went wrong. Or at very least, here's a situation with a bit of leverage going on. And so there's a bit of jiggery-pokery going on in the background. Pembroke, Shrewsbury, Bedford, all mysteriously received grants of land. Arundel, traditionalist though he was, well, he signed up as well. There were some problems. Cranmer at first refused to sign. He had sworn to uphold Henry's will and that troubled him. Other men have signed, Edward said gently, and they have consciences too. I am not judge over any man's conscience but mine own only, said the good archbishop. He tried to dissuade Edward from this course of action, which is interesting, since he knew full well Mary's religion. Still, he even tried to gather an opposition group in the council, which in retrospect looks like conscience taken to extravagant extremes. The Duke lost his rag again, and he and Cranmer had a bit of a ding-dong at the council table, but in the end, royal supremacy won over conscience in Cranmer's mind, and when Edward asked him to sign, he did so. The other man who gave them trouble was William Cecil, the signing was done by the councillors altogether, and when Cecil was called, he refused to sign. The others just kept going, and when all were done, Edward spoke personally to Cecil. Now, the source of all this is a funny letter. That's funny, peculiar rather than funny, ha-ha. A funny letter to Cecil in 1573 from a colleague reminding him what had happened all those years ago, sort of thing, almost as though the official record of events drawn up by Cecil in 1553 had been lost and they were trying to remember. He willed you to subscribe as a witness that it was his pleasure to have it so to pass, which you have no reason to deny. And so, as the last man, you subscribed. Why did so many of the most powerful men in the realm sign up then? Surely, surely, whatever you think of Northumberland, you have to discount that everyone was just scared of Northumberland. This is not like a Bolshevik Politburo with hundreds of thousands of political opponents already mown down. These are men like Pembroke, Shrewsbury, more personally powerful and rich than Northumberland himself. Religion seems a tricky one, though more possible. On the one hand, signatories were a combination of conservatives and evangelicals. And so you think it can't be religion since they all signed up. But I suppose it's possible that the smaller number of conservatives amongst them felt corralled and isolated and forced into it. Another possible reason is that it's a return to common law. It's a rather fine point, to be honest. But look... 
Henry's succession required illegitimate children to succeed him, since Mary and Elizabeth, by the very act itself, were illegitimate. Whereas Edward's new succession, although it was imposed by royal will, returned to succession by legal inheritance, people who were legitimate. The other option, and my personal favourite, why everybody signed, is that they simply thought it was fair enough. It was the king's will. It was the king's decision. Now, you may be looking with some surprise at your generic MP3 player, or indeed fruit-based device, and wondering why on earth, in the name of all that's holy, is this guy blathering on about the device for the succession? We spent half a blessed episode on the darn thing. Well, look. The thing is that the traditional assumption, or what I was taught anyway when I were a lad, was that really the Lady Jane Grey thing was just, you know, just sort of a blip, an obvious aberration before the rightful Queen Mary came to the throne, you know. Well, as I hope I have demonstrated, I'm with Eric Ives on this one. The rightful and legal successor to Edward VI was Lady Jane Grey. So, in as much secrecy as possible, with so many people, Edward's devise for the succession was signed. Everyone of political importance was signed up. Every connected political player knew what was going on. Which, of course, didn't include Lady Jane Grey. Now, remember what I told you earlier? This very week as we speak, a new series has started for members. A serialised biography of Eleanor of Aquitaine with William the Marshal to come. Remember that? So that word again, thehistoryofengland.co.uk forward slash become a member. How exciting is that? Here on The History of England, though... Next week, folks, we will start a bit of a hoolie. Two weeks of fun and, indeed, of games, which I have chosen to call Rebel Queen. As I mentioned, there will be a poll for everyone, a prize draw for everyone with fabulous, fabulous prizes, a special quiz and a prize draw for the very special people, also known as members. We'll kick off, as normal, on the 2nd of December with an episode, which shall be on Lady Jane and her life to date, and then we'll pay our final respects to Edward. Then we'll go through the succession crisis with a podcast a day, just like an apple, designed to keep the doctor away. And then, on the 9th, the denouement, Monsieur, Mesdames, sacred blue, the denouement. But there's more. On the 9th, also, yes, also, Wolf and I will be reviewing the film Lady J on history and technicolour. Remember that? Helena Bonham Carter, Carey Airways, all that sort of thing. Surely we can't have more. Well, yes, we can. Without giving up any plot spoilers, we'll have a full episode on the fallout from the results of the succession crisis on the 10th of December, and then, on the 16th of December, we've got an interview with Nicola Tallis, historian, author of The Crown of Blood, and I can hand out prizes. And then, exhausted, I shall slink off to eat, drink and be merry until 2019. Something to look forward to. Thank you, everyone. I hope you will take part next week. Thank you for your generous reviews and general loveliness. Don't forget to go to thehistoryofengland.co.uk if you want to buy a Christmas present of membership for the ones you love, or indeed the ones you don't. As applicable, I'm not proud. And I'll see you all next week for Rebel Queen The Gathering. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. 
Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 